Thank you. Delane, that was a great way to stir our hearts as we prepare for Psalm 3. I have a handful of psalms that I use on pastoral visits. I've been doing this for years, and one of the most frequently, uh, frequently used ones is the third psalm. It's a short psalm that gives expression to feeling overwhelmed, to feeling like everything around you is collapsing. It's a good psalm to read when everything seems hopeless, when there doesn't seem to actually be any good news. Because what the psalm does is it looks at overwhelming and impossible circumstances and expresses confidence and hope in the Lord. I think the point of the psalm can be summarized in a pretty famous older catechism question. The first question, the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is our only comfort in life and in death? And the first part of that answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. A more recent modern adaptation of that question comes from the New City Catechism. It asks, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, that we are not our own, but belong to God. That is the message of Psalm 3. David looks at impossible circumstances. He looks at a situation that is desperate. There doesn't seem to be any way out. And he says what Delane just sang, that God is his possession, that the Lord is his, and that salvation belongs to the Lord alone, and therefore he can have hope. One old commentator named Matthew Henry summarized the psalm this way. He said, this psalm, by the example of David in distress, shows us the peace and holy security of the redeemed, how safe they really are and think themselves to be under the divine protection. That's a good summary of what this psalm is all about. So let's take a look at the psalm together. If you have a Bible or a device, you can turn or open that to Psalm 3. And I want to begin with the heading, which isn't actually part of the verse in your Bible typically, but it's that heading that says a psalm of David, that part. That's not a study note from your Bible. It's, it's actually original to the psalm. These go back to the earliest manuscripts. They're actually really helpful for helping place the context of the psalm and helping us understand it. So we'll begin there. The heading says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. That gives us the context and puts a concrete situation to the language of the psalm. And you don't need to know the background, actually. You don't actually need to know where this comes from in Scripture. That can be helpful. But in order to fill the full weight of the statement, you just need to read this closely. So just read it slowly. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. What could be worse than fleeing from your son? You see the desperate situation. This isn't anything good about this situation. It's absolutely terrible. And as for the background, you can read about this in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 15. Absalom, whose name incidentally and ironically means father of peace, actually creates a rebellion against his father, the king, who's David. 
And he starts this rebellion to take the throne away from David. And what's more, the rebellion is actually successful. David has to leave Jerusalem because he doesn't have enough support. The king has his throne usurped by his son, the son he named Father of Peace. And to this, David writes this psalm. So pick up there in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Then you'll notice that little word Selah at the end. I'll just make a brief comment on this. We really don't know exactly what this was originally intended for, but most people think this is something of a musical notation, like either a way to highlight what has just been said or to create emphasis on what has just been said, or even perhaps to pause and reflect on what has just been said. And you'll see three of these throughout the psalm. So the idea seems to be break here or hold here and listen closely to these two verses, especially this last line. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is the reason I have often read this psalm in ministry settings. I usually say something like this, you're probably, you can probably relate to David right now. You feel like attacks are coming from every side. You feel like the foes are numerous, that everything is stacked against you and you don't see any escape and you're beginning to despair. I know many of you sitting here and watching online can relate to this as well. The language is endlessly applicable. You can apply it to any situation. Anything you're going through this morning, I think this applies to that situation. We also learned something important about prayer here as well. And it's evident throughout all of Scripture as we listen to it as a whole. But that lesson we learn here is that prayer should be honest before God. Notice David doesn't have this idea of cleaning up his language or cleaning up his prayer. He simply comes to God with his despair right from the beginning. Lord, look at my situation. Look how desperate it is. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. There isn't any hope. And they are saying that there's no salvation, that you're not going to help me. I'm afraid sometimes we think it's necessary to come to God and pray prayers that seem perfect. And and we think that by using those perfect prayers, God's going to hear us. But what the Psalms instruct us in is praying honestly before God bringing the full weight of our feelings before God. And so David says, look at my situation. John Calvin counseled that the only remedy for allaying our fears is this, to cast upon him all the cares which trouble us. To cast upon him all the cares which trouble us. And David goes on into verse 2 to say that they're mocking him and saying there's no salvation for him in God. They're looking to harm him in the deepest depths of his being. They're aiming at his very soul, right? They're saying to him, there is no hope for you. God has even abandoned you. God has left you alone. You were the king anointed by God. That's not true anymore. You are left completely alone. Hopeless despair will destroy a person quicker than anything. And that's exactly what his enemies aim to do. There is no salvation for him and God. 
And this psalm, by the way, points ahead to an even greater David who would experience the same suffering. In the New Testament, we learn about Jesus Christ who was thought to be abandoned by God. In fact, that's what everyone said about him. Passers-by derided him on the cross. As they went by, they said, he has hoped in God, let God save him. See, they said the same of Christ. There is no salvation for him in God. But as we'll see in this psalm, David affirms that there is salvation in the Lord. He's not driven to disbelief. He's not driven to total despair, despite those who would speak on behalf of the Almighty. Instead, he's driven to prayer. And the psalm begins that pivot in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. But you, see the contrast, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He says three things about the Lord here. And I want you to pay attention to these three statements about the Lord. First, he says the Lord is his shield, his protection. The ESV, which I'm reading out of and you can see on the screen, says a shield about me. Translating this Hebrew preposition that has this sense of surrounding or protecting. The idea is that the shield is covering him. He's covered by the Lord. He's protected no matter what happens. Second, he says the Lord is his glory. He calls him my glory. It's really a profound statement. The Lord is my glory. In other words, everything else in my life could fall apart. Everything else around me could fall away and I would still have everything I need because the Lord is my glory. Like Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have to be honest here with you. This is really challenging and convicting for me. This is where I get to preach to myself. Because I believe it. I believe that nothing in all this world can satisfy us like the Lord. I believe that it is a great evil to find our satisfaction apart from the living God. To think that we could possibly find our satisfaction apart from the living God is in fact a great evil. I, I believe the words of the old Fanny Crosby hymn, Take the world but give me Jesus. But I get fearful. Like Peter, when he gets out of the boat, I look at the wind and the sea and I take my eyes off of the Lord. It's scary. This world is scary. We live in such a skeptical world as well. Everyone tells us the pressure is there, right? There is no God. The best you can hope for is to kind of have a good life and then it's going to end. I want to take this a step further still. The great news of the gospel is not that we get heaven. The great news of the gospel is that we get God. To paraphrase John Piper here, if we were somehow to be able to enjoy eternal bliss and God wasn't there, we should reject that with every bone in our body. You see the difference? The gift of the gospel is communion and fellowship with the living God. That's what David says here when he says, the Lord is my glory. There is nothing better. There is nothing that can satisfy him. 
That's what David says as the world is falling apart around him. As his son is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, he says, the Lord is my glory. Now, practically, how in the world do we get to a place of being able to say this? How in the world can we cultivate the attitude of David in this psalm? Well, we cultivate it by gazing at God, learning to love God by gazing at Him through the prism of Scripture. That is, we come to Scripture not wanting to hear life advice, not wanting to figure out the next step for us, but looking to behold the living God and to know Him, and to behold Him and be transformed by Him. We must commune with Him through prayer, spending time talking with Him, but also meditating on who He is, meditating on His attributes. The fact that He is in control, as we see in the psalm. The fact that He is good, that He is faithful. The fact that He is perfect in all of His decrees for this world. And on and on and on and on. It's a shame. I was listening to a talk this past week with a scholar of a particular Puritan. The Puritans are people from the late 1500s up into the end of the 1600s. They were people who looked at the Church of England and thought it had grown so corrupt that they desired to purify it. They looked at Scripture and said things need to change, and they brought Reformation. And some of them then, of course, sailed the seas and came to North America. But I'm listening to this talk of this scholar who is editing a particular Puritan book by a Puritan named Stephen Sharnick. Stephen Sharnick wrote an 800-page-plus volume called The Existence and Attributes of God. Go to a Christian bookstore. Where will you find an 800-page book on the attributes of God? We don't even talk about it from the pulpit. And so fortunately, Crossway is publishing this book, and hopefully sometime later this year, updating the language, because Sharnock wrote, you know, 500 years ago almost, so it's hard to read, but, but to bring back this important doctrine of God, that in our pulpits, right, that, that what, something we, we care deeply about here is that we're not talking about me, you're not hearing my stories, you're not hearing about the church and all the stuff we're doing, but you're hearing about God and who God is. One of the great problems, as I've said, in the American church is the fact that we don't know who God is. We don't even talk about who God is or what God is like. So we must learn and be nurtured by the truths of the Christian faith. We just spent an entire series on this called Sound Doctrine where we preach through the book of Titus because it is those truths, reliance on those truths, that has sustained countless believers before us under the most trying of circumstances. Knowing God, that is eternal life. Did you know that is what Jesus says is eternal life in John 17, 3? He says this is eternal life, that you know God and the one whom He sent. We can't afford to talk about God in shallow ways. Otherwise, the world will swallow us up. Otherwise, we'll look at all of the pressure, all of the things that could go wrong, and we will be swallowed up. But when we turn our attention to the one true God, we spend time meditating on Him and gazing upon Him as He is revealed in Christ, then, then we can have the same claim that David has. You are my glory. Third thing he says here in verse 3. He is the lifter of my head. The world may deem this king disgraced. 
He may have drooped his head in desperate dejection. And yet, he says, the Lord allows me to lift my head once again. My head needs not say droop because the King of glory is my eternal possession. And it's that King who will hear his cry. Look with me at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. This holy hill is a reference to two things. One, where the king is installed in Jerusalem, where he would be anointed and appointed king, where he would be recognized as God's choice to govern the nation. But also, the place where the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence among his people, where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And what's interesting is David says... The Lord will hear and answer me, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, who is sitting on the holy hill right now? Absalom is sitting on the throne on the holy hill, and yet Absalom is not in control at all. It is the Lord who will determine the course of events. And this is an interesting verse as we consider the background here, considering the narrative in 2 Samuel 15, 16, following there. As David is fleeing the city with his few supporters, the high priest comes and the, 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 the Levites, the people responsible for temple worship, they come with the Ark of the Covenant. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're going to take it with them. They need God's presence. And David says, no, we're not taking the Ark of the Covenant. I'm fleeing Jerusalem. Take the Ark of the Covenant and place it where God had it. And then he says this, and it's so powerful. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He will bring me back and let me see both it, the Ark of the Covenant, and His dwelling place, that is the temple. But if he says, I have no, or tabernacle in this case, but if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. Look at David. He throws himself entirely on the sovereignty of God. He says, take the ark back. I'm not trying to manipulate things. I'm going to trust that if God wants to bring me back, he'll do it. And if he's rejected me as king, that's fine as well because the Lord is sovereign. He's in control. David has completely resigned himself to the sovereign God. Again, Matthew Henry comments, a cheerful resignation to God is the way to obtain a cheerful satisfaction and confidence in God. In other words, a cheerful or trusting attitude toward God is the only way to find satisfaction and confidence. We see this exemplified in the life of Jesus as he's on the boat and sleeping in the midst of a storm. Even he understands that importance of resigning ourselves to the Lord. So David appeals to the Lord, but we have an even greater means of appeal that I'd like to draw your attention to. So David says, I've cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And yet we have an even greater confidence in God's answer because it is Christ who constantly mediates for us. Remember last week, we went through Psalm 2. The King, the Christ, we're told in verse 6 there in Psalm 2, if you just look back, is set by the Lord on Zion, my holy hill. That's the Lord speaking. Our confidence in receiving comfort and protection lies in Christ's finished work on our behalf. 
As Hebrews says, He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. But fully God and fully man standing in the gap for us. The perfect priest who doesn't need to cleanse himself, but can enter and bring us with him into the Holy of Holies. The perfect sacrifice who was sacrificed once for all, who doesn't need to be repeatedly sacrificed, but is sufficient for us once and for the entire world once. And for that reason, we can have the confidence of the song. Look at verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for or because the Lord sustained me. David is able to rest because he has resigned himself to God. But listen, his sleep is not final. He doesn't sleep a sleep of despair that leads to his death. He wakes again nourished. And he doesn't have a sleepless night either. He's able to lay down and actually sleep because the Lord sustains him. And here we see a shadow of the gospel. Because it was Christ who slept the sleep of death. But it was not the end. He too woke again. And we have the same confidence. Whatever trials we face, when we shall take our final breath, the Lord will sustain us and we will wake again. We will be raised with Christ. It's important to remember this when we look at our life and time seem bleak. See, Scripture makes no promises that we will be spared from suffering. The psalm doesn't promise that at all. As one lady used to tell me, she's now passed on, but early on in my first pastorate, she would say to me, God never promised us anything on a silver platter. It was one of the most profound things I've heard because she understood the simple fact of resigning her life to God. Scripture makes no promises that we will be spared from suffering. David here suffers. Christ suffered on the cross. Everything looked hopeless. But after the night had passed, eyes were opened and the Lord had provided a new day. The Lord sustained them. So David can say in verse 6, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, there's no escape from many thousands of people. If you're surrounded by many thousands, there's no way to get away from them. And David, even under that circumstance, says, I will not be afraid. And he makes this petition to the Lord, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David's enemies may say there's no salvation in God, but David knows better. Look what he says. Save me, O my God. For you are the one who brings victory over my enemies. Now this language may seem harsh. This talk of breaking teeth and all of that. But consider just how it might apply to your life for a second. Consider how it might apply to your troubles. Okay, so don't, don't think about enemies. You're not a king who's been run out of Jerusalem. But, but you do have things stacked against you, perhaps. And think about God as your protector, your shield, your defender, and how He has already accomplished everything on your behalf through the work of Christ. Think about that, and think about this language applied to those troubles. 
Consider how we might apply this to the spiritual battles we face. You realize there are real enemies. There's a thing called spiritual warfare. There are things that we cannot see that work behind the scenes to bite and devour and destroy God's people. I think it's still quite appropriate language, don't you? Then there's the final verse, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember what I told you. His enemies said, no salvation, there's no salvation for you and God. But David says, salvation belongs to the Lord. The one who possesses it is the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And we might even translate this, may your blessing be on your people. David's enemies had said otherwise, but now David affirms what he knows to be true. Salvation is the Lord's alone. One commentator writes, he looks to the Lord as the sole bestower of deliverance or salvation and the sole source of his people's blessedness. David doesn't look to his armies. He doesn't look to the size of his kingdom or the size of his armies. He looks to the Lord. He doesn't expect human means to do anything for him. Because salvation doesn't belong to his armies. It doesn't belong to him. It doesn't belong to his strength or his skill or his cleverness. It belongs to the Lord. And as I've already said, this psalm doesn't promise deliverance from trouble or even from death. But it does promise something so much deeper, something so much more sustaining. It promises rest and refuge in the midst of sorrow. It promises rest in an all-satisfying God. It reminds us by pointing ahead that there is one who bore the sorrows and grief of the world, one who was surrounded by enemies as he died, and yet he now lives so that you and I might be righteous before God. That's what Paul writes in the letter to the Romans when he says he was raised for our justification. That is, he was raised so that we we might be righteous before God. And because He was raised, we too will be raised with Him. We say it every time we baptize in a Baptist church, right? Buried in the likeness of His death, so we experience a death with Christ. We're united to Him, but we're raised to walk in newness of life because we know that the resurrection that is Christ is also ours who are in Christ. That's the hope of the Gospel. The hope of the Gospel is not that we would fix ourselves or that we would somehow escape our troubles or our enemies. But the hope of the Gospel is what David says here, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Only the Lord can do what we could never do for ourselves. The Gospel is unlike anything else that the world will offer you, unlike anything else that any other religion has to offer you. Because the Gospel says, if you put your trust in Christ, Christ alone has already defeated sin, Satan, and death on your behalf. And by being united with Him through trust, through faith, not through reliance on any of your works, but through reliance on what He has accomplished, then you too will have a share in everything He has accomplished. You too will share not only in His death, that is the killing of the old self, but you will share in His resurrection, which is this new life, now in God's Spirit, but also forever in eternal communion with the one true God. That is the promise. And so I ask you one more time an answer for you. What is our only hope in life and death? that we are not our own, but belong to God.
Pastor Chris is coming to pray our pastoral prayer this morning, and as he makes his way up here, let me just extend an invitation as usual. I'll be out back after the service, or out front, I guess it is, it feels like out back. Um, I'd love to talk to you. I'm happy to talk with you out there. But we, our emails, our phone numbers are available. Our pastoral staff, Pastor Chris, Pastor Rupert's on vacation this week. Any of us would be willing to speak with you. If you want to learn more about the gospel, if you have questions about your faith, we provide pastoral counseling. Or finally, if you're interested in partnering with us as a member here at the church, we can talk you through that process as well. If you have any of those questions, that invitation is on the table. We're in the office all week and would love to hear from you. Pastor Chris is going to lead us in prayer now. Let us pray together, please. Lord God, we thank you so much for your presence here with us this morning. Lord, I'm sure in a group this size, Lord, that many of us come in here today just feeling overwhelmed with life. Lord, some of us may have health issues, may have financial troubles. Lord, we may have relationship troubles. Lord, there's so many things in our world that just get us down and just help us to realize, Lord, that you are bigger than all those things. So even though it may feel as if the world is caving in on us on all sides and we may feel all alone, Lord, help us to remember that your word tells us that we should cast our cares on you because you care for us. Lord, we know that your word tells us that you will protect us and that you will be our shield. Lord God, we are so thankful that you have gone and prepared a way for us, Lord, for eternity. But Lord, as we just talked about a few moments ago, that would be worthless if you weren't there waiting for us. So Lord, we thank you for the promise that we can spend eternity with you, that we can, we can live and trust in that. Lord, I pray that as we just think about all the things that are going on in our lives today, that is going on in this world around us, Lord, help us to never forget that you are bigger than all those things, than all those situations. Lord, help us to never forget that you are sovereign and that you are in complete control. Lord, we may suffer for a season, but you promise that we don't have to suffer alone, that you will be with us. And Lord, for that, we are thankful. Lord, just as Peter got out of that boat and walked on water, Lord, for a, for a few seconds, Lord, we often do the same thing. We get lose our focus. We focus on the troubles around us, the storm that's around us. Lord, help us to do as Peter did and to realize we're in trouble and to cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. And Lord, we know that your word tells us just as you reached out your hand to stop him from drowning, Lord, you'll do the same for us in whatever our situation is. So Lord, help us to be humble enough to admit we have a problem, that we need your help. Lord, we thank you that you're our protector, our defender, our sustainer, and our savior. And Lord, I just pray that we trust you and that we give our lives completely to you. And Lord, may we honor and glorify you in all we do and all we say. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs> 